1: Are really thrilled to be speaking in this episode with Dr. Jill Grimes, who is a board certified family physician and who wrote an incredible book called The Ultimate College Student Health Handbook. But what's great about the book and, frankly, about this episode is that Jill covers so much more than the health issues facing college kids. She covers health issues facing high schoolers middle schoolers, and the parents and adults who are involved in the lives of these kids. So we are thrilled to have her voice. She's a nationally recognized media expert. She has won awards for her writing. She has raised two kids. She has been in private practice for many years. And now she's on the Puberty Podcast got any advice about how we can talk about weed, or you might call it pot, or you might call it marijuana, but your kids are probably calling it weed. How do you handle that one? What do we adults need to know here? What's the difference between being 21 and not 21? And how do you speak about it in an effective way? All right, Vanessa, I think you're going to find your take home here.
0: (laughs)
2: I'm stra- I'm strapping in, Jill. I'm ready. Here we go. I'm going
0: to take notes. So I tell them, if you didn't grow it, you don't know what's in it. And I'm not recommending that you go about back and start your own <laughs> feed factory here. So what do I mean by that? Here's the issue. In the ERs, they talk about wet weed, which means pot that has something else in it. So if you are particularly in a state where it is not legal, like Texas, 100% of the pot in your state is going to be being distributed by illegal drug dealers. Now, those drug dealers do not look like a shady character in a movie. They look like the lovely male or female co ed walking along campus, and they're your friends and peers. So there's this feeling of trust, but you need to remember they're still an illegal drug dealer. They sell their pot by weight. That's how weed is sold. And to make it heavier, they will put ground glass in it. They'll put extra substances in it. So it weighs more. So it costs more. Also, they want a reputation of having really good pot, right? You want it to be really give the big high. So they'll add extra stuff, you know, like formaldehyde, which we use to pickle dead things, right? So we don't really want that going in your body. And worse than formaldehyde, there's a fair amount that we see that's laced with LSD. And you guys are nodding. I know that you obviously must have talked about this, but it is so scary to me. And the first person I saw with this actually was in my private practice many, many years ago. And, you know, this was a soccer mom who turned 50 and she, and her husband just decided on a whim to smoke a joint because they had done that in college. It was just like, it was this, you know, little thing. And she was in my office, literally sending messages to an alien ship and receiving messages. And obviously this, it was so scary. And that was the first time I had ever treated anybody who thought they had just had pot, but they had LSD and had a very bad hallucinogenic experience from that.
1: And then let's layer on in states where it is legal. Like my state of California, there are dispensaries everywhere and they are selling weed that has a THC, which is the active ingredient, right? Four to five times the concentration that it was when any adult listening to this was in high school. And so that is what I saw in my practice, interestingly, was the exact same scenario. The parent who wanted to go back to college days Mm -hmm. and went to a dispensary and bought something that was supposed to be safe, right? Supposed to be clean. Right. Right. Because it's legal. You bought it at a legal store. Surely it's fine. Right. And there's something to be said for that in the dispensary system. I mean, I I think it's really complicated for those of us in healthcare. It's fair, this is a very loaded topic because the fact that the product is being checked, that is a good thing. The fact that it is five times as potent, that is not a good thing. And right. so that there's that layer too.
0: Yes. And so I always say the things I say is it's not your parents' pot at which point I talk about the THC concentration. If you didn't grow it, you don't know what's in it. And then I talk about things like internships. And there's this perception that if you know you're going to have a drug test, you'll just go to the store and you'll buy the little thing that says, clean your urine. There's some 30 different products to choose from. And some of those do work to some extent. But the thing with pot is that it stays in your system longer, depends how your body fat and how much you're smoking and how often and all the concentration and all of those factors. But what I see is young adults coming in in crisis because they have just lost their internship that they worked so hard to get or med school, law school, whatever, because they failed a drug test because guess what? It wasn't a urine test, it was a hair test and it can stay in your hair for up to three months. So there's a lot of things to consider, And I totally agree that it's a loaded subject. I'm more uncomfortable with completely illegal drug dealers because at least we know that it's just THC in there. But then you go into edibles. And the problem with edibles, you know, this is super pertinent to the Puberty podcast, but they're packaged in such cute, fun little things. They're gummy bears and I mean, almost juvenile, actually not almost, truly juvenile. Truly. things appealing, you know, they're appealing to that. And so that makes it look, I mean, how dangerous is a gummy bear, please. So you have one and how many gummy bears do you eat when you're eating a gummy bear? You don't just eat one gummy bear if you were eating a normal gummy bear. Right. And so they eat one and they don't realize that because it's not inhaled, it has to be digested. So you're not going to get a high right away. And so then comes number two or three or whatever. And now, now, now you really got a problem. because you've right.
1: got so, so you've got two groups of problematic kids on the younger end. You've got the group that doesn't know it's an edible and they're eating it by the handful because they think it's gummy bears. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the group that does know it's an edible who are looking for the high and they are not waiting 30 to 45 minutes before the effects appear. So they are eating them by the handful sometimes in order to make this thing work, if you will. And so two different paths to getting to some serious intoxication. Exactly. And then it was interesting. I was
0: talking with a woman who actually runs a lab in um, in Colorado, like a medical lab. And one of the things they do is people will bring in part of an edible to check the content of the THC. And it is not standard, even in places where it's legal.
2: I would also add that lots of adults use edibles now. And again, they are packaged like kind of to appeal like candy, right? To appeal to that sensibility. Please don't leave your edibles in your sock drawer or your coat pocket or the kitchen cabinet where your kid can find it and eat. 10 gummy bears filled with THC, if you are choosing to do that, please keep them somewhere safe and far away from where your children can find them because it's not responsible. In addition, if you have an older teen or college student in your home who you think is using edibles or has vape pens, make sure the rules are really clear about where those are kept or not kept. If you have younger kids living in your house with this older kid, there's a good chance they're going to find whatever that older kid is, is keeping in their room. So these are hard conversations to have with your older kids because it means maybe acknowledging that you know that maybe they're doing some of this stuff. But if it means keeping younger kids safe from what they might stumble upon, it's in everyone's best interest to address it head on and make some clear rules about it.
1: Yeah. And just a reminder that the legal age applies. So, in states where it's legal to have cannabis dispensaries and to buy, you have to be 21. And that is the law. So, we talked about things that people think
2: are one drug or one thing that are actually something else, or maybe laced with something else. And we don't like to be fear mongers on the puberty podcast. We like to be you know, constructive and positive, but there are some things that are truly frightening and really like a major, major risk for death. So let's talk about fentanyl. Jill, what are the risks? What are you seeing in terms of like people not knowing they're taking it? Why is fentanyl so dangerous? And what can parents say to their kids to make sure it's really clear about how dangerous it is?
0: So... Unfortunately, I think most communities have a very sad story to tell. I know our community does. Things are added to pot or pills are given, whether it's fentanyl or whether it's oxy. And when you combine sedatives, when you combine them with alcohol in particular, you can stop breathing. And the 525 Foundation. For example, in South Bend, Indiana, where Notre Dame is, two brothers, Nick and Jack Savage, died on the same night Mm. from mixing alcohol with one pill. And so you can talk about it, but I, I really genuinely think sharing these stories and Becky Savage, the Savage Boy's mom, actually, she and her husband founded this 525 Foundation. They have a book that is a great story. I think every parent, honestly, should read. And sometimes leaving these books out, you know, commenting on them and not saying, here, you have to read this or sticking a 20 in it, but leaving them out, a lot of times they'll float around the house and, and kids will read them. And I think it's, the thing is, it just takes one with fent- fentanyl it, it stops breathing you know it's it's an anesthetic so you can only reverse it right away with narcan and so we just really have to emphasize to our young adults and our younger kids that you never hesitate to get help you're never going to be in trouble for getting too much help but you you can't go back and unkill someone
1: and what is your thought as someone who Is working with kids who have access to these medications, their medications. Do you think kids should also be carrying Narcan? I mean, this is a question I get all the time from parents. And before you answer, I'm just going to paint both sides. So the argument for doing that is that fentanyl laced pills, fentanyl laced cocaine, fentanyl laced fill in the blank is only reversible with Narcan. Immediately. And it is a life saving remedy. Mm -hmm. The other argument, though, is it is a lot to put on a teenager or a young adult to have the responsibility to be carrying the life saving drug and to need to know when to administer it. And so, you know, how do you navigate that? I have a big slant on that. So
0: the kids that choose not to drink are often the kids who end up so stressed out because they are always the one, you know, they're the mom in the group, even if it's a guy, they joke and they'll tease and call them the mom. And that they're always the one who's going to be responsible for the one friend who's puking. And then they, you know, (laughs) seriously detracts from their own fun that they're having. It is a lot to put on them. I do not think that we should be giving kids in general Narcan. Do I think RAs and colleges should have it? Probably. I think, you know, that there's obviously, you know, training and stuff that needs to go with it, but it is, it's an immediate life-saving issue. And time is such a factor that, that I do think it needs to be a little more accessible than we have it right now.
1: Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where UmLaw comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra, and it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented, layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding. Which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around and find your umbra plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com.
2: Cara, lately, I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine, and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested, I'm less cranky, and I'm more patient with my family
1: and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause.
2: We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty.
1: Your body and brain and family and business partner. Will, thank you. Vanessa. We literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend.
2: We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies.
1: So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to
2: factormeals.com/ slash puberty50 and use the code PUBERTY50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is PUBERTY50 at factormeals.com/ slash PUBERTY50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them.
1: Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Let's pull the lens back a little bit. and talk about because this is the puberty podcast. And so one of our very favorite topics is the dyssynchrony between the way the body develops and the way the brain develops. And so let's talk about what it means to have someone who looks like an adult, not making adult decisions Namely, you know, you write a lot to the college audience, but everything that you write is applicable for sure to the high school audience. And to a lot of middle school. And to a lot of middle school. I mean, so many, I would say, as I was reading through your book, a solid 80% of the information in there is middle school appropriate. And so just in case there's any confusion here about how there's bleeding between these different arenas, but let's talk about when kids do hit the high school years and certainly the college years, and they look like they are able to make adult decisions, but they are not. How does that impact not the information you give out, but the way you give out your information, exactly as you were just describing in the setting of a kid who's 100% of his friends are drinking. How does this mismatch between body and brain change the way you give your information to help parents figure out and other adults figure out how they can message their information?
0: How I have reached young adults. And I have been talking to middle schoolers and high schoolers for about two decades. And, you know, you have to have really clear language and you have to know your kid. I mean, we've got, as you know, I I always think about seventh grade, you know, that horrible seventh grade, worst psychiatric year of your life, you know, because you've got pimples and no pimples, boobs and no boobs. And I mean, and you guys talk about this all the time, so I don't have to explain it, but you, you have that, that disconnect of a little kid or one that looks like a big kid, but really is still not. And so talking in very plain language, particularly like around sex and drinking and like the word blowjob, you know, I always say that's oral sex. That's just somebody's mouth on somebody else's genitals guess what? I didn't just die of embarrassment there. Parents, you you can say that. And these are important conversations. And the problem is because they do look like adults, particularly if they're taller than you and, you know, you, they literally look like adults, but they are doing risky behaviors that they're not, that are more impulses. And so I think sharing stories with them about challenging outcomes for other people whether that's pregnancy or STDs or some of the awful things that have happened with with people mixing alcohol and pain pills, which can stop you from breathing and kill you, um, and these are these are things that we have to talk with them about. But just because they can do something that they look like they should, definitely does not mean that they have the wherewithal to make those decisions. And it, a lot of this comes down to parenting styles, because you know I hear I, parents. Say well, you know, I I want them to learn to drink in my own house, and you know, and so that they want to kind of encourage that, and you know, there's there's a lot of different layers of that to look at.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're saying two really important things, Jill, that I think apply to this conversation and really any conversation with kids in adolescence and young adulthood. One is you got to define your terms. You cannot use language with kids without defining. I think parents assume. That their kids know more than they actually do. I literally just had a conversation with my 11 year old the other day about what a blowjob is because we went to a comedy show and the comedian was talking about blowjobs. You can question my parenting later. Fair enough. Um, and good. I was like, oh, he's 11. He's the fourth child. He hears everything, you know, and I didn't think about it. And then I later was like, hey, do you know what a blowjob is? And he, had no idea. He just knew it was like, you know, sexy or dirty or whatever. Well, Um, and he
1: was making it the punchline of every joke. Oh, that was
2: 69. No, that was 69. 69. Yeah, that was 69. So there was also... He didn't know that either. There was the year in our house, Jill, where 69 (laughs) was the punchline to every joke. And me, puberty educator that I am, it took me a year to look (laughs) at him and say, hey, dude, do you know what 69 is? And he was like... (laughs) Not really. And then I told his 16-year-old brother to tell him what 69 (laughs) was so that I also knew whether his brother actually knew what it was. But I think defining terms is so important when we talk about pornography, when we talk about sex, when we talk about mental health issues, like all of it, it's so critical. And the other thing that I really like is for us all to be aware of what we're modeling for our kids, right? And every family is going to do it differently. Mm -hmm. Every sex and health educator is going to do it differently, but we are always modeling for kids. And what we do is more important, actually, frankly, than what we say. And, you know, we're not going to place judgment on what different people do in their homes, but we all have to be aware that what we show our kids, how we behave, what we drink, what we eat, you know, how we handle our lives is sending them the most powerful message of anything we're ever going to say. So -hmm. I really appreciate both of those comments. Just out of curiosity, since you, you know, you brought the blowjob topic up, do you have any favorite, because you're like us, right? You're putting it out there. No nonsense, clear language, straightforward, no shame. Do you have any favorite ways of like, bringing up the conversation about sex with kids. I I just, everybody's a different way in and and different, even different definitions. Um, And I'm curious if you have a favorite way of of doing that, Jill.
0: My main thing is to say that it's not the conversation as um, I'm sure you guys emphasize all the time. It it is, it's an age appropriate growing up conversation. And I always kind of compare it to what we say about smoking when kids are young we say Ugh, yucky smoking is bad and when they're a little bit older we say you know it can damage your lungs and cause cancer and then when they're older and they're, they're they've got people around them vaping and smoking we say you know what that can give you yellow teeth and bad breath because that's more important to them than cancer and you know and so you have to tailor it to what's important so with sex i think the main thing again is you know knowing where your kids at you when they start Having significant others, then that's the time to you know start up in the conversation. And it's usually taking your kids, so not not in front of other kids, but when you're when you're driving and they're sitting next to you and you're you know you're driving them to school or whatever, that's my it was always my favorite time for talks like this and and it often comes in the form of their, you know, it, it may not be them. it's their their best friend or their friend group. You know whether they're going to a part, you know, party or a dance, and, and then you just ask. You know, well, what's going on? And my favorite as you'll hear me say it over and over, you're like, "Yeah, what percentage of your friends are doing X, Y, or Z?" Mm-hmm. And that way, you're not you're not saying, "I knew that girl was doing that," you know, or "Oh my gosh, I can't believe," blah, blah blah You're just saying, in your friend group, is this an issue? And they'll be very honest. I I I have no trouble getting honesty from adolescents. We're
1: going to move past sex in a second, but before we do, you write a lot about and talk a lot about STIs and STDs. And can you just give us a quick bullet on why are they on the rise and how can someone tell they have one or when should they get screened for one? Okay. So in general,
0: my issue is if you've had a new partner... You need to be tested. So it only takes one to get something passed back and forth, and the more partners you have, the higher risk you are because you're not just being intimate with them, you're effectively being intimate with everybody they've been intimate with, and so on and so forth. So the favorite thing is, oh well, not not him or not her. She's not that kind of girl or boy. You like well you were intimate together, so, you know, there's always that risk. So personally, I think that the, you know, the hookup culture, I find that, that young adults frequently want me to say that the hookup culture is great. It's not a problem. It's, you know, that's just, that's, it is what it is. But the reality is the more people you are physically intimate with, if hooking up means having sex, having intercourse, then the more people you're with, the higher risk you are going to be for disease. And so you just need to know that and you need to take precautions. You need to be immunized against um, the human papillomavirus so so that you don't get genital warts. You need to use condoms or a barrier every single time. By the way, this does include oral sex. And when we're talking about, part of my just standard conversation, you know, with groups where we're ta- where we're discussing it, not that I talk about pro all day, but <laughs> if it comes up, well, today you do, Jill. Today. <laughs> then I always ask them, like, hey, why do you think there's flavored condoms? And I am telling you every single time the light bulb goes on, they're like, oh, oh, wait. So you're supposed to use that with oral sex? I'm like, that's why there's flavored condoms. Oh, and they'll remember that.
1: I already have my takeaway for the end of this episode. <laughs> Every episode, Jill, we're just going to tell you now we end with a takeaway. Vanessa, don't take that one. That's mine. I'm just wondering if it's pineapple or
2: cherry. That's mine. (laughs) (laughs) But you bring up an important point, which is if you A, add storytelling and B, add humor to conversations around tough subjects, they are more memorable and kids are more able to hear it than if it's a serious lecture that is purely data and facts. So that's a really important approach that you use, Jill, that I think is great for people to have as a takeaway. I'm not taking Kara's takeaway. I'm just mentioning that.
0: And (laughs) when I'm talking about chlamydia, so so one of the questions you said was, well, how do you know if you have anything? So a really (laughs) important thing to know is that, you may have no symptoms and still have it. You may have symptoms for two or three days or just a day. And then it goes away. I, this is all the time. They're like, oh man, I had some burning when I was peeing or I had a little bit of discharge. And thank God that went away. <laughs> like, mm, let's, let's go ahead and just test you. And testing now, guys, is largely just peeing in a cup. A lot of times people have avoided it because they're very nervous about a physical exam, but that should not be a reason to not get tested. So.
2: In your experience, Jill, will the campus health center just routinely, if a kid walks in and says, you know, I'd like to get screened for STIs, will they just say,
0: Most, yeah. most, campuses, most campuses have a separate, you know, a, a separate just screening clinic. Yeah. Okay. So I
2: want to shift gears and we're going to, I think we'll do one more question, Jill, and then we're going to wrap up and I won't steal Cara's takeaway, hopefully. We've been talking a lot about drugs and alcohol and sex and kind of physical, that kind of physical safety. I want to shift to anxiety and depression, which were on the rise before COVID. And now we're seeing, you know, even more of an impact, you know, it post, I don't know if we can say we're post COVID in the endemic phase of COVID, since I'm talking to two medical professionals. (laughs) So... You know, folks are sending kids to boarding school, they're sending kids to college, and we hear a lot about what does it sound and look like if you have a child in your home who you're concerned about. But getting back to this issue of not having eyes on your kid in the same way, for people who are concerned about the mental health of their loved ones who are far away, what are some strategies to prepare for, you know, before they leave. And then once they're away from us, what are some strategies we can use to keep things in check, be in communication, make sure our kids are, you know, taking care of themselves or being taken care of? Would you have some, some favorite strategies there, Jill?
0: Um, One, I want to recommend a book by a psychiatrist called The Campus Cure And I can't tell you the subtitle off the top of my head, but it's basically a parent's guide to helping their student with um, anxiety and depression. Great. Highly recommend um, by Marsha Morris. So this is, this is so complex. I I think, I'm sorry, I could like, my brain's going in 30 different directions because I want to tell you all of these things. So one is encouraging students when they first go off, they need to belong. They need to feel like they belong. So I always encourage them to literally plan to join at least three different organizations. And, and at least two of those can't be like a tryout sort of thing. You know, it needs to be something that you can just do. It's like one's maybe a service organization, maybe juggling club. I mean, you know, it, it, anything, but just have something so that you have an activity you have to go to, you have to leave your dorm room um, because especially you know, man, especially after COVID, but before that, you know, the, the ones that are a little bit introverted can end up spending a lot of time in their dorm room. And then in and the more they do that, the harder it is to get out. So ahead of time, setting up something positive. The next thing is setting up something like a gratitude journal. The easiest thing to do this in a, in a college setting is actually to, and you know, whatever works for anybody is great, but something that um, our daughters did was to do a private Instagram, private, private. Nobody gets to see it except them unless it's a family Instagram, which is actually what our family did. And we would just put up one picture, something that we were, we were grateful for, you know, might be a picture of a leaf, but and if something if something good happened in our kids day you know they would take a picture of something and or you know it really didn't matter what the picture was as much as you know it's just saying oh had this positive thing happen but what happens is, if you're doing that gratitude journal, then when you get into the bad things, but you you know you force yourself to say something positive every day. One that helps your mindset. We know that we literally know that from evidence-based medicine. But two, you look back and you can you, you've got something to look at that is you that was good for you. So that can propel you forward. Counseling and therapy. Again, I think if you start seeing danger signs that you know that your kid isn't they're not paying attention to hygiene. So, so you do that FaceTime and you're like, and that they're not going out and or they're telling you, I am, hate it here. I'm lonely, you know, miserable. I don't have any friends, which a lot of kids say, especially the first year. And a lot of that changes, even the ones who desperately want to transfer for all of the first semester. Something happens in that spring semester where they start, you know, finding their groove and finding their people and understanding that the first people they met, including their roommates, may not be friends and that's okay. Um, We just put so much pressure on them for everything to be great immediately.
2: I wanna highlight that, Jill, because I think you mentioned this earlier, this best four years of your life culture that we live in. And it's very specific to the United States and other societies. It doesn't have the same culture, but this pressure, you you meet people. I mean, I have a freshman in college and people see him and they're like, don't you just love it? aren't you just having the best time, right? People immediately assume, I mean, he happens to be enjoying college and I'm grateful for that. And the transition was easy, but I know lots of amazing kids at wonderful schools for whom the fall semester was hard and it was a slow build and it took time and they were lonely or they were trying to find their people. And I think removing that sort of manically amazing expectation around how great college is from the moment you step on campus is so critical for kids and being aware of what language we use Mm -hmm. about school, right? Because if they're already feeling pressure, we're just adding more pressure onto them by setting that expectation. So I really, I want to emphasize that. I think that's so important. What about Jill, finding therapists or healthcare providers ahead of time? Like what's, is there sort of a good way to go about that?
0: So most campuses, again, will have a health center and there's varying availability of therapists. I think the best thing to come out of the pandemic is telemedicine for mental health, which has just been, it's so much easier to access now. So I think that is, you know, if, if you're already concerned and definitely if your child is, and they're not really, I don't want to use the right word there, but if your student is already on antidepressant, anti-anxiety medicine, ADD medications, and those are going to be continuing, obviously, in college, then you, you really should be looking to see, is that something that the campus health center can provide or not? And if not, then you need to be looking for maybe a neurologist who can prescribe the ADD meds or, you know, somebody in the community. Same thing with therapy. But first, look at the college Health center, I'm telling you, so I always tell students like, you know, look, your tuition, you're paying for this, you know, go to our, you know, biofeedback lab, sit in the massage chairs. I mean, a lot of campuses now, I mean, it's a big push happily on all campuses to start doing things to help more with mental health.
1: Yeah. And they know what's going on on that particular right, campus they're on the ground Huge bonus. And and then also to maintain contact with doctors or therapists that they've had from, before college, right? So they're thank goodness for telehealth. I agree with you. One of the things that it is helping is continuity of care. Yes. So that if someone has a therapist in high school with whom they have connected and bonded, and that relationship is working, they can take that relationship with them sometimes. And that makes a yeah. very big difference.
0: Depending on licensing, right? Yes.
1: And we're pushing, you know, just on the licensing side, there's a very big push to maintain the licensing exemption rules that were established during COVID that sort of said, it doesn't matter what state you're in, you can practice across state lines. There were reasons that those rules were put in place, but there are also very good reasons to reconsider those rules. And I think in the next three, four, five years, we're gonna see a real revolution there because access to care is really hampered by not being able to practice across state lines in certain circumstances.
2: Jill, I want people to buy your book because it is so helpful and there's so, so, so much information. It is like every sentence is filled with useful information. So we've only scratched the surface today, but you've offered up some really helpful, not only information, but also strategies for adults to use. And we will have links to Jill's book and her social media accounts. You can follow her. I want to wrap with our takeaways. We usually let our guests go last because we're a little bit springing this on them. And since Cara does not want me to take her takeaway, I'm going to let Kara go first so that we can be very fair with this. So, Kara, you want
1: to go? You want to go first? Yeah. I mean flavored condoms. That was going to be my takeaway, right? So what I love about Jill's Pearl there is both the fact of it, that flavored condoms are flavored for a reason. So think about that. And the storytelling of it. So whenever you're trying to get a point across to anyone, it doesn't have to be a kid. It can be your spouse. It can be your parent. Remember that that kind of storytelling, narrative, humorous take is far more impactful a lot of the time. Not all of the time, but a lot of the time.
2: So I'll piggyback on that by saying that another important strategy is getting eyes on your kid, even if it's by FaceTime and being in regular communication so that you have a baseline and a sense of kind of where they are and where they aren't. I mean, when we were in school, I don't know, we spoke to our parents once a week. I mean, you once a week, my husband's English, he spoke to his parents twice a semester, (laughs) which might explain why he was up to what he was up to when he was at university. But having that, like I send photos of our dog to my son Mm -hmm. because she's who he really misses and he may not answer my texts about other stuff, but he will always respond when I send him pictures of our dog. So, finding you she, guys have she the, sends him
1: pictures of my dogs too
2: and <laughs> Car's dog because Car's dog looks like a blown up version of my dog. But, you know, finding ways you talked about the gratitude journal, you talked about a family Instagram account, we have a family WhatsApp, finding ways to be in communication and in touch that are not so frontal. But allow us to have that thread with our kid when they're not in our homes.
0: Exactly. We had a lot of dog uh, pictures of our dogs in the family Instagram because that is what they miss. And the nice thing is that with something like a private family Instagram, that can be accessed at any time. So you're not and you're not expecting a response. And we we didn't we didn't do likes. I mean, you it was just it was just a little touch point.
2: Putting it out into the universe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So what's your takeaway, Jill? So my takeaways are um, for the college part. I just want to say that what we've said over and over now that yes, it'll be great if college will be the best years of their life so far. But even with the best years, you're going to have bad days and bad weeks. And if we don't, make that clear that that's part of the expectation, then we're piling on because the first time they do have that, they bomb their quiz or they get dumped by a significant other, or they don't make a club that they want. Now, not only are they sad, but they've failed, failed us, failed our expectations, failed their own expectations, and then you spiral downward. So college will be the best year so far, but there will still be bad days. And then On the the ones coming up from that, my takeaway is to really start letting your kids take over some of their medical control. So whether that's doing their own pills in a a weekly pill box, which we hope someone will will design better ones, or it's making an appointment or driving themselves to an appointment, or just going with them to the appointment. And then you sit there next to them while they fill out the insurance form the first time, second time, third time. Because everyone's like, what's the guarantor? Who's this? Wait a minute, I need your social security. I mean, it's just so that they've had that experience.
2: Jill, this was so terrific. Thank you for all your information, your expertise and your willingness to keep it real. It's a wonderful way to share guidance with people. We're so grateful
1: that you joined us today. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at thepubertypodcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myumla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye.